Well, good morning. Glad to be here with you this morning to begin in our study in the book of Colossians. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be looking at Colossians 1, 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, if you're kind of new to the New Testament, Colossians is one of those books that always gets lost for me. So if you're flipping through the New Testament, you get to Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, then Colossians. And we're right at the beginning. Well, let's pray, and then we'll uh, look into God's Word together. Lord, I pray that uh, this morning we would be able to see the supremacy of Jesus, and that we would understand the power of the gospel being proclaimed in our lives, and that it might change us so that we can uh, see the hope of, of Christ in each other, and we can understand that we have been transferred to a new kingdom. May you help us uh, understand that this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of sick of COVID. <laughs> it's nice to see COVID policies uh, start to wind down a little bit, and though there are hot spots and infections, I think we're going through one right now, we seem to be on the way out, and I really am glad of that. Uh, I remember back when um, we were first you know, understanding this disease, everybody was like, washing their groceries, right? Because we didn't know whether it went through the air or went on the surfaces. It turns out it went through the air, and so we all started wearing masks and had to protect ourselves that way. And it moved around the world fast. It was a global phenomenon because of our global society. There was another global phenomenon that spread around the world and didn't land on surfaces. It wasn't something you could just pick up, but it was something that came through the air person by person, one by one, just like COVID or the flu or any other phenomenon of that sort, it changed people instantaneously and forever. But this phenomenon didn't ravage people's bodies, it uplifted their souls. In 30 years or so, the world had heard the stories of this poor prophet of Israel that preached of peace and justice, love and sacrifice. And then like so many others before him, the government killed him. But unlike anyone before him, and since then, his followers claimed that he didn't stay dead, but he was raised from the dead. In fact, 500 people said they'd seen him alive, heard him speak, ate with him. And now his followers claim that he ascended to heaven and was sitting at the right hand of God. They even boldly claimed that this man was not just a man, but was God himself, and that the message that he said was true. It had been broken out through all the world, beyond the walls of Judaism, and all people were accepted. The church in the ancient Roman world flourished by this one-to-one -one spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It was a gospel outbreak. Now, it wasn't easy, easy for the early church. There were challenges. Anything that spreads fast sometimes spreads with problems, and the gospel spread uh, with some other false gospels along with it as well. They spread the lie that Jesus wasn't enough, that his message was deficient, that converts had to believe in Jesus plus keeping the uh, Jewish ritual law. Or another lie was that Jesus wasn't sharing it all, that there was some hidden meaning that only a few people got to hear, and you had to have special knowledge from this special group to know it completely. It was called 
uh, sometimes called Gnosticism, but it was this idea that there is some secret thing that you needed to know. Still, the gospel spread one by one, person to person, through people like Apollos and Priscilla, Aquila, Stephen, Philip, Barnabas, and Paul. They were sent out around the world, and the world was listening. So as much as they were preaching and writing, these men and women of the faith were also praying. And the gospel was going out. You know, as I prepared to preach this morning, I often wonder how to pray for people and and the people that I get to speak to. I, I never really know what's going on in people's lives when I show up on a Sunday. And with the people on the internet, I, I don't really know who's going to hear this message. So I prepare and I write and I, I pray for the things that I know you need, that are universal to all of us, to have faith that works itself out in love. In the first part of, of the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul has the same conundrum. Paul's been a traveling teacher, thinker, and writer going on missionary journeys throughout uh, Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and he's found himself now in prison. This letter, along with the letter of Ephesians and Philemon and Philippians, are written in prison, though we're not exactly sure which time Paul was in prison a few times. Paul had never been to this church in Colossae, but he had at least heard of them, and he knew that the person that started the church, he knew who that person was, but Paul felt it important for him to connect with uh, this church as well. And so he wrote them a letter to encourage them in their faith. Paul, I think, kind of felt some responsibility for not just the churches that he had been a part of, but the other churches in Asia Minor as well, even the ones he didn't start. He wanted to make sure that they started well and that they were going on the right path and they were not falling for these counterfeit gospels that were coming alongside. He wanted them to make sure that they knew what it mean, what it meant to have a right relationship with God. See, all of these false claims, they, they sounded similar to the way that Paul had proclaimed, but they were insidiously in error. So Paul went on a journey from the prison through his writing to these various churches. At the end of the letter of the Colossians, Paul says, After this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So Paul knew that he was writing these letters that could be spread so that the message could go out to all of the world. It had meaning for the Laodiceans and for the Colossians, and so it also has meaning for us today. And so, we begin looking at the book of Colossians. Paul begins his letter with a somewhat standard greeting in verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to God's holy people in Colossae the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. He introduces himself not by who he is and what he's done, but by what God has done. Paul says he is an apostle of Christ by the will of God. Now, when I introduce myself somewhere, I probably do like you do. I tell my name, maybe where I'm from or who I'm related to. Um, some people will even say some things about themselves, some accolades that they have. Those are the details we usually include in an introduction. It's, it's kind of the shorthand way that we know to introduce each other so we can kind of get a feel for who they are. Paul 
a far better theologian than I will ever be, and more accolades to his name than can, than can be counted, doesn't introduce himself that way. He doesn't say, uh, Paul, student of Gamaliel, Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, and so on and so on. He simply says he's a messenger of Christ because of the will of God. William Barclay in his commentary on Colossians says, here, right at the outset of the letter, is the whole doctrine of grace. A man is not what he has made himself, but what God has made him. Paul was with his friend and protege, Timothy, whom he calls our brother. Paul knew that his time in ministry would be coming to a close. He didn't know when, but he's sitting in jail. And I'm sure when you're sitting in jail, you start to think about your mortality and what will come next. So he was, he was preparing to give the mantle to the next one, to Timothy, who was going to be that faithful servant of the church in Asia Minor as well. And he addresses his letter to the faithful. He calls them holy people or saints. Not many people today call themselves saints. In fact, uh, many people would say, I'm no saint, as if a saint is some unreachable goal. But the truth is, those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, that Paul preached by the will of God, they are saints. They're not perfect, but they're holy. They're set apart for God. Just as Paul was set apart by the will of God to preach this message, the people that are reading this letter, Paul says, are set apart by God to do the will of God. And so Paul starts his letter, grace and peace to you. And then he gets into the meat of the letter in verse 3. He says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Because we've heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. In the same way the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Now, Paul keeps his focus on the boss. He says, we thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his focus. You're going to see that time and time again in this book of Colossians, how we're keeping our focus on Jesus. You know, change is inevitable. Um, we have children come and go, grow and go off to new adventures, just like our seniors are, as, as we talked about. Change just happens in life. And change is a part of life, whether for an individual or a church, but no matter the circumstance, I can thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what's going on. In all things, His will remain, and He remains faithful to His people no matter the circumstance. And Paul can thank God for what he's heard of them with regard to their belief and their love. These two things go hand in hand. In fact, I would say you can't have one without the other. Faith is active in love. Faith is active in love. And if it's not active in love, can you say it's truly faith? James says it this way, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith 
by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. See, James was saying that faith works itself out in love. Paul thanks God for them because they have faith that's working itself out in love. Love for God's people. Clarence Jordan is the author of the Cotton Patch Gospel. Uh, that's a, a gospel, as a story written, it's not really a translation of the gospel, but a story of the gospel written uh, in the south of, of the United States, kind of to give it some, some context. And he said this about um, Christians that think that orthodoxy, or right thinking, right believing, is more important than orthopraxy, or right working. He said, we see that in religious fundamentalism, a lot, where there's a high emphasis on what you believe about the Bible and not actually do what it says. May that not be the case for us here at Cornerstone Church or any other Christian church. And it wasn't the case in Colossians. Their faith was working itself out in love. See, to believe rightly means to act rightly. Paul addresses this to the saints, to the ones who are set apart. So where does this faith and love come from for Paul? Paul says here it comes from their hope in the gospel. This hope is stored up in heaven. It's a hope that there is more to life than just the physical. And there is more to living than just what can be found in this time. You know, the world says live for today. The world says, uh, grab the brass ring because there's no guarantee of what you get tomorrow. But that is not the hope of the Christian. Life is not just lived for today. It's lived with a view toward eternity. We live with hope. The definition of, of faith in the book of Hebrews that we just finished studying says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, in Hebrews 11.1. 1. The Christian life that Paul thanks God for in the life of the Christian believer is that they are pressing on to uh, the goal of full confidence that they will receive this great life that's stored up for them. They, will, they have this hope. That word translated stored up, or in some translations, reserved, is uh, used in the same way that someone stores up something in a bank. It's secure. You can have confident, confidence that it will be there. The hope that we're living for Christ is not ephemeral. It is sure. We can be confident that at the end of this life, there is hope for us in the bank. Atticus and I decided to go on an investment together. Uh, we both put in a whole dollar into Bitcoin. So we have 0. 0.00004670 of one Bitcoin. <laughs> Every time one of those ads come on TV that says you'd be an idiot if you didn't have cryptocurrency, I always get out the app to see how we're doing. Uh, <laughs> we started at $2 in, uh, of, of U.S. currency in Bitcoin, and I think we went as high as $2.20. Uh, Atticus, I looked at it last night, we're like at a buck thirty. <laughs> That is not the kind of gospel, that's not the kind of hope that we have stored up that can be gone in an instant. The hope that we have stored up for us is the hope of the gospel. Now, Paul doesn't define the gospel here. 
but he defines the outcome of the gospel. He simply calls the gospel the true message, or even more literally, the words of truth. You know, there are a lot of true words. Um, The sky is blue. That's a true word. Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president. True words. But those aren't the true words that Paul's talking about here. Paul is saying that the gospel are the true words. He really defines what he means by the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. For what I received I passed on to you of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day, according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. These are the true words that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus rose again, according to the Scripture. If anyone asks you, what's the gospel? These are the things you can say, Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose again, according to the Scriptures, to save us from our sins. That's the gospel message. That's the simple truth that impacts the Christian life. And to live a life uh, for love of God and love of others. Now, I think this distinction is really important. We have faith in Jesus Christ, who lived and died and rose again. That's the gospel. Sometimes people get the gospel and the effects of the gospel mixed up. They might say that the gospel is loving other people. Or they might say that the gospel is making sure that people are treated with justice and kindness and dignity. But those are a result of the gospel. The results of the gospel are not what we have hope in and not what we have in the bank in heaven. This is important because there's plenty of good people. There's plenty of good people in the world that, uh, that love people, that treat people with kindness and dignity and do justice, but they don't have hope in Jesus Christ. And so they don't have this hope in heaven. We don't want to confuse the effects of the gospel, loving people, with the reality of the gospel, that Jesus lived and died and rose again to save us from our sins. That's what we have hope in. And that that hope works itself out in love. We have to hold these two things in tension. The gospel is the true words of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But the other truth is this. Our lives ought to be impacted by that in such a way that we love God and love people. We can't mix those two truths. We, have, we can't call them synonymous. They're not. One flows from the other. So the result of the gospel is what Paul talks about here in Colossians 1.6. The first result of the gospel is that the message is both individual and universal. It came to the people of Colossae, and it's going throughout the whole world. Again, William Barclay says, The gospel is universal. It's not, it is for all the world. It is not confined to any one race or nation, nor to any one class or condition. Very few things in this world are open to all people. A person's mental caliber decides the studies he can undertake. A a person's social class decides the circle amidst which he will move. Uh, A person's material wealth determines the possessions he can amass. A person's particular gifts decides the, the things that he can do. But the message of the gospel is open 
to all. So it's growing beyond the borders of Jerusalem, out into Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Paul is thankful to God that the believers in Colossae believe in a message that keeps growing. And that gospel is bearing fruit. The story of the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord is changing lives. Faith working itself out in love in Colossae is evidenced throughout the world and in Colossae. Now, fruit comes in a lot of different shapes and sizes. I was in the grocery store the other day, and I saw uh, giant papayas and tiny blueberries and gargantuan grapefruit and fuzzy kiwi. And all of those fruits come from a healthy plant. They all produce it in different ways, but they're all a healthy plant. You can't have fruit if you don't have a healthy plant. The gospel is, is the, the growth that produces this healthy plant in the lives of the Colossians. They truly understood God's grace, and they believed it, and it changed them. And that same transformation is going on throughout the whole world. Have you ever considered how many Christians right now around the world are at this moment impacted by the gospel of Jesus? From the grand old cities of Europe to the villages of South America, small towns in North America, the people of Africa and Asia, islands and mountains, prairies and cities all over the world, hearing and being impacted by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, the website TravelingTeam.org tracks missionary statistics, and it says Christians number 2.432 billion worldwide, all Catholic, Protestant, etc., within 7,163 total people groups, comprising 30.3% of the whole world population. Two and a half billion Christians. But this universal message has not reached everybody. It's still growing. There are still 7,000 people groups that have not been touched yet. That website said 1.51 billion people speaking 6,000 languages don't have a full Bible in their first language. 145 million people speaking 1,892 languages still need translation work to begin. Now that might seem overwhelming to you, but listen to this stat that they said. There are 54,000 evangelical Christians for every one unreached people group. 54,000 evangelical Christians for each one people group. We've got the odds for us. Reaching the world with the gospel is not a lost cause. You see, God plays the long game, and the gospel will continue to grow and reach throughout the world. Just as it came to the Colossians and spread to the world there, uh, by the words of Epaphras, it's going to the whole world as well. See, Paul knew Epaphras, calling him a faithful minister. Paul had no sense of competition with Epaphras. He wanted this message to go out by all means possible. And so he, he knows who Epaphras is, and he knows that Epaphras is preaching the gospel. We don't hear a whole lot more about Epaphras. Um, he's mentioned here in Colossians twice, and once in the book of Philemon. He was probably Gentile. Colossians says he's one of you, so he was likely a hometown boy. He'd heard the message somewhere along the line, perhaps from Paul himself. He'd visit Paul in prison, and was likely even a prisoner himself, at least for a time. He was faithful. And because of his faithfulness, the gospel is going out to them 
and he represents others just like him, locals, that have heard the gospel and proclaim it to others. Someone, perhaps Paul himself, invested in the life of Epaphras, and that investment paid off in droves for the people of Colossae, and then in return for us. Another website, internationalstudents.org, says, it's estimated that by the year 2025, 50% of all world leaders will have been international students. Currently, there are over 1.3 million international students studying in the U.S. and over 4.5 million studying worldwide today. You have Epaphrases in your hometown as well. At Coe College in Mount Mercy, in, here in Cedar Rapids, there are, there's a great international population. And if you can't connect with them, uh, then there are people that have dedicated their life and time to working with students like Ethan and Heidi Ford with Navigators or Marv Junk at uh, Maranatha investing in the lives of international students. So there are Epaphrases like those people in this town. And you, like Paul, can invest in their ministry so that, so that they can invest in these people that will go back to their hometowns, whether it's down the street or around the world, to share the gospel there. The gospel will go out. Will you be a part of that work? Let me encourage you to invest in the Epaphrases around you. The gospel will grow just like it did in Colossae, and it will bear fruit through the world. So make an investment in these hometown heroes of the faith and watch the gospel grow. Paul invested in the church in Colossae. He invested his time and his writing and his prayers. The passage continues in verse 9 with a description of the prayers that he says for the church. And here once again, we're going to see the themes, those same themes come forward in verse 9. For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we've not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of His will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Now, I think this order of prayer is important. One prayer request flows from the next. First, he prays that they will have knowledge of God's will. This is the second time in this short passage that Paul brings up God's will. He introduces himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In the same way that he was convinced of his apostleship, Paul prays that they would understand the will of God in their own lives. He prays for this knowledge of His will to come through all wisdom and understanding of the Spirit. Wisdom and understanding are really two sides of the same coin. Wisdom, the word is sophos, uh, that is at its core is about understanding the world around you, whether it's the wisdom of how to fix a flat tire or the wisdom of how a molecule holds together. It's a practical knowledge of how things are rooted in the human experience. The other side of the coin is understanding, and that's the Greek word sunesis, which is knowledge of the things that are not of this realm. Uh, Jesus, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your mind, he uses that word sunesis. And so Paul is talking um, 
about understanding this mystery through knowledge and understanding. You know, God's will is a touchy subject sometimes for Christians. Paul wants them to know God's will through the knowledge of the world, wisdom, and through the knowledge from above, Tunesis. And both of these kinds of knowledge are led by the Spirit. Paul was convinced of his apostleship by the will of God because he understood the reality of Christ and because he understood the mystery of Christ. And he prays that they too will have this understanding so they can please God. And pleasing God looks like this, bearing fruit, growing, being strengthened, and giving joyful thanks. Those are the very things that the gospel is doing throughout the whole world. It's growing, it's bearing fruit. Paul gives thanks and they are strengthened. Paul is praying for them that the gospel that he has proclaimed throughout the world would be working in them too. Paul says in Romans that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Paul is not praying that they would have some secret knowledge, some additional thing, some way to kind of divine the will of God. No, it's plain, it's simple, it's the gospel working itself out in their lives. That's what he prays for. Do you want to know the will of God for your life? It's the same as the will of God for Paul and for the Colossians. That they would let the gospel take root and flourish. That it would work its way out in the fruit that bears in their life. That it would be a life pleasing to God. So many people, Christians especially, fret and worry, am I in God's will? When Kim and I first moved to um, Iowa years ago, back from Texas, we came to start a church in Iowa City. Now, we had no idea what we were doing. Someone said, you should go get some training. And we went, ah, I just finished almost a master's degree in theology. I certainly don't need any training in that. So we went to Iowa City, and I thought, I'll just start preaching, and people will just come. And didn't didn't happen. And we wondered, were we following God's will? Were we, were we right for that? Now, we certainly made all kinds of mistakes. One of them saying maybe we didn't need that training. But looking back after 20 years, I can see that we were making our life a living sacrifice. We were trying to live a life that was pleasing to God. And so I believe even though it didn't work out the way that we wanted, we were in God's will. Are you living a life that's focused on the gospel? Certainly not perfectly. But can you say, I am doing, um, I, am, I am putting Jesus first in my life. Are you making your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to the Lord? I just lost it. It's on my shoulder. <laughs> Devil didn't want you to hear that. <laughs> are you living a life that's holy and acceptable to the Lord? If so, you are smack dab in the middle of God's will, no matter the circumstances you face. Paul was in a jail cell, and he said he was an apostle by the will of God. And he was praying for the will of God to them. If the will of God can be found in a jail cell, it can be found where you are no matter the circumstances, even when it's hard. 
even when uh, you don't know whether you're going to be able to pay the next bill, even when you don't know uh, exactly why this relationship is falling apart or why this, this situation is happening in your life, if you are making your body a living sacrifice and you are saying yes to God and yes to Jesus, then no matter what is happening in your life, even if you're in a jail cell, you are in the will of God. God's will can be found anywhere. Finally, in 13 and 14, he says what what happens when the gospel goes out, when his prayer is answered, when we live a life according to God's will. It says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of of the son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Again, Barclay's comments are golden on the word picture here. The word which Paul uses to transfer, to bring over, is the Greek verb methistemi. This is a word with a special use. In the ancient world, when one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it lock, stock, and barrel to the conqueror's land. Thus, the people of the northern kingdom were taken away to Assyria, and the people of the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. So, Paul says that that God has transferred the Christian to his own kingdom. That was not only a transference, but a rescue. The gospel working out in us and in the world brings us right into the kingdom of God and the forgiveness of sins. We're no longer dominated by darkness, having our mind clouded by the sin that so easily entangles us. We are basking in the light of the beautiful kingdom of God and now in his domain. Paul could say confidently that he was in the will of God in the midst of prison because he had been transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of God by the will, by the power of the true word that he shared with them, the truth of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Do you know this will of God in your life too? Paul prays for the believers in Colossae that they would know it. And that's my prayer for you too. May you be built up in the wisdom and understanding of God so that you may live a life that is pleasing to God because it's rooted and saturated in the true word of God. Let me pray for you. God, I pray for my friends here today that they would know and understand by the power of the Spirit, uh, the the will of God in their lives. Uh, May they be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. May we give thanks to you who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. You've delivered us from darkness and transferred us to your kingdom. And there we have forgiveness and redemption. May we live in that light. In Jesus' name, amen.